Max Verstappen comfortably wins the first ever Miami Grand Prix to leave Charles Leclerc reliant on Ferrari's next upgrade package. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato, and this is Round 5, the Miami Grand Prix. Powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. The Miami Grand Prix was an extraordinary spectacle for a fairly ordinary race. Despite expectations for carnage around the unusually slippery street circuit, the Grand Prix was fairly tame and featured only one unusual crash. And that was just fine for Max Verstappen, who went into this race a little underdone after more car unreliability robbed him of practice time. Not that you'd have picked it from his race. A perfect start got him from third to second, past Carlos Sainz, and by lap nine, he was in the lead, past Charles Leclerc, undoing Ferrari's first front row start in almost three years. Red Bull Racing's pace on the medium tyre sealed the deal, with Ferrari again struggling to keep the softer rubber alive. And though they were better matched on the hards, the damage had already been done. Leclerc's better tyre warm-up added some jeopardy to a late race safety car restart, but Verstappen had it all in hand, winning the race and cutting his championship deficit to just 19 points, down from 46 just two races ago. So to help dissect the first ever Miami Grand Prix, I'm joined by executive editor of GP Racing magazine, Stuart Codling. Cotters, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Good morning. Well, it's it's, it's morning where I am. Um, I, I can I'd, I'd say I can still taste the toothpaste, but I haven't got that far yet. <laughs> I, I can still taste the my morning coffee, which is a weird confection of um, cinnamon flavored instant coffee and French vanilla creamer. So, um, yeah, where does it go from here? Evening where you are, isn't it? Good evening, Michael. It is. Thank you. Although considering it's been such a long day for the time zone of Miami, it could be any time. Trying not to look out the window, it's easier that way generally. I've got to say, the first Miami Grand Prix, I guess there's two different ways you could cut it. Pretty good for a car park, average for a racetrack, would you agree? Yeah, you're not wrong. And I think the drivers would agree with you. So, um, yeah, well, let, let's unpack the track first. Um, an interesting layout. Uh, I think the drivers were broadly supportive of most of it. Mm-hmm. And I was fortunate enough to be um, invited at the last minute onto one of those Pirelli hot laps where oh. you're driven around by drivers of varying competence <laughs> at, at high speeds in, in cars of varying quality and appearance. Um, uh, I, I was very lucky. I was in a British racing green Aston Martin um, uh driven by Nico Hulkenberg and oh. next in line after me was none other than Hollywood um, uh, one note film director Michael Bay so I <laughs> half expected a graduated tint to appear in the sky <laughs> and everything to break into slow-mo <laughs> so yeah I, I, I got a taste of the circuit there's there's a lot of it that's fast and flowing a lot of what we might call connected corners and maybe we could come back to those um, later because they were a factor throughout um, qualifying especially and the race and in practice and then in order to accommodate uh, those sort of fast and flowing bits on the layout uh, it, it sort of loops does a weird loop back underneath the access road to the nearby Florida turnpike and that's where we get to the, the kind of the Mickey Mouse chicane bit that the drivers hated uh, but I think they, they broadly liked the layout they didn't like the chicane they didn't like the uh, corner that precedes the chicane where the wall is is quite close 
uh, and so that's something that's going to be looked at for next year uh, and also the track surface itself so what what they did uh, the organizers as as well as landscaping the car park as as best they could with astroturf and green paint and palm trees to make it not look like a grand prix in a car park let's not go into the business of the fake marina and um, mm. beach resort i don't mind them you know it's entirely in keeping with the general artifice of of miami uh the uh, the, the track surface was a custom mix mm. of some some local aggregates, a lot of the stones from Georgia. So, you know, <laughs> America's a big country. It's not that local. <laughs> they had done their utmost. They, they, there, was, there was a lot of bitumen in the mix. And then they, after laying the surface, they had um, scraped it. So that the, the idea being that the that would bring the bitumen up and, and provide an abrasive surface and i think it's fair to say that has had mixed results so it didn't deliver the grip expected or hoped for anywhere on the track and it made for one line which was relatively grippy and then uh off that line a lot of drivers said that it was like almost like racing in the wet so you would if you strayed off the line either through making a mistake or you know, heaven forfend trying to overtake someone, um, then you would pick up all sorts of nonsense uh, on your tyres. And that, that was you done for the rest of the lap, basically. And so we, we saw a little bit of that in the incidents through practice and qualifying. So that was a bit of a shame. I I, I presume that they're going to lift it and um, they'll just lay a new track surface next year. So there are what um, strange people in media and management call learnings, but we'll call <laughs> lessons because that's the actual word. Uh, and I, I think the the other thing we should probably note is that the, the track surface was already beginning to peel in some mm. crucial corners, uh, even before a single Formula One car had taken to the track. Uh, they had to relay uh, a couple of bits at um, turn seven after the early hot laps had been done and then um overnight uh into saturday they relayed a few bits uh around turn 17 the final hairpin and uh, uh af- after the first running on friday and that that, that was all starting to kick off when I-, I went round with a couple of colleagues for a, a track run on friday night we we just passed we were just arriving at turn seven when the track inspection team were, were there getting out their pickup truck and one guy was going well you know it, it's better than i thought so <laughs> they, they were quite impressed with the quality of repair there uh, and then they were just turning up because you know we're, being older gentlemen we don't run that fast the, the, they were turning up with a truck to scrape and dump a load of new stuff on top of the final hairpin by the time we get there so yeah it's there's, there's been a touch of improv behind the scenes this weekend it's fair to say in order to to deliver a spectacle well if the track started breaking up before the weekend even started i suppose we can blame michael bay for that it seems relatively in keeping with uh, the style i suppose yeah at least no one got blown up <laughs> well that's the you know, that's a great positive you know great improvement on things then really just as a brief uh, aside to that or addition to that, I, I, th- I thought it was interesting, as you mentioned there, it was sort of a custom kind of asphalt. They called it innovative. It was sort of a mixture of local kind of stuff. But it seems a little bit out of place, I suppose, in this era of Formula One where it feels like every aspect of the sport is being interrogated for how well it, it supports the generation of overtaking and the spectacle and all that kind of stuff. But the literal track in this case was sort of a little bit of a an experiment that just didn't seem to to be pulled off yeah it 
it, to my mind, it says a lot about the power this Grand Prix holds and how uh, important it is to Liberty Media and, and Formula One in general. They've coveted another race in, in America. They've been desperate to, to get this this race across the line. Obviously, when first mooted, it was going to be downtown in Miami, but um, the the local stakeholders, or, you know, depending on your political persuasion or affiliation, you might call them NIMBYs, um, <laughs> dis- saw that one off. Uh, and that, so they, they ended up doing this deal with, with the Miami Dolphins uh, stadium. And... Really, I mean, what what an interesting deal that has been. For, we we understand that you know they they got it at a relative discount, sort of Monaco rates in terms of the amount of money changing hands between Formula One and the race promoter. And not only that, the the race promoter was able to um, take the at least the majority of the proceeds from a paddock club and hospitality. And haven't they just filled their boots? Because as mm. you went round the circuit, there were a few grandstands, but most of it is corporate hospitality. And it's corporate hospitality that is right up against the circuit walls. So the the much mocked uh, marina and beach club, you, you really were looking over the circuit there. So it was a great VIP experience, um, but quite difficult in terms of the normal circuit architecture. You know, at a, at a permanent racetrack, you have, you know, the circuit, the white line, the grass or asphalt, the tech pro wall, uh, whatever that there and then you have the sort of the inner or outer ring road where the marshals and photographers and whatever move around and you can get the circuit vehicles that come around that that was actually not present for vast swathes of this circuit so for the the working people that that was quite difficult though the the marshals are fair play to them it it was a long working day for them because they had to be bussed out uh, actual coaches going out onto the circuit to drive them to their positions to drop them off and they were then they then had to stay there all day until nightfall uh, or end close of play on track activities and the coaches come round and pick them up so um an, an awful lot of normal working practices have been <laughs> no pun intended thrown under the bus in order to <laughs> secure a, a great vip experience and, and then i i understand that uh, there have been a few logistics problems in the local area, and I, I don't know uh, what things are like in Australia. Certainly, in uh, where, where I live in the UK, there's been all sorts of mad, weird uh, logistical problems uh, affecting uh, getting hold of food and stuff like that, and petrol mm-hmm. at weird times. Uh, and there, there are lots of things in the local area. Even the Starbucks up the road has had to shutter its doors and do drive-through only because there's a shortage of the. Well, they've, they've missed deliveries of their foodstuffs. So uh, at, at the circuit on Saturday, they had to advise um, quite a few VIPs but, and corporate pass holders not to come because they weren't going to be able to cater for them. So that's sort of interesting in what it tells us about the times we live in. Mm. But also it, it, it poses a, a little bit of, of a, I won't say a dilemma because that's a choice between two equally disagreeable alternatives it it certainly poses a challenge for the promoters next year um that there's there's certainly no arguing that it was pretty much a success this event in terms of getting people through the door but obviously these little bits of 
dysfunction behind the scenes may have an impact on uptake next year you know if you've or so if if someone has paid x thousand dollars to host uh, a load of vips and they've been told they can't come uh, would they spend x thousand dollars next year so year two of the miami grand prix is going to be uh, quite interesting i think absolutely look give every vip an f1 branded thermos and some instant noodles and i'm sure <laughs> that'll take care of at least part of the problem let's turn our attention to the race or the action on track in any case you mentioned some of the specific aspects of the track the first sector in particular i think was was one of the better parts of the track really one of the more f1 typical bits of the track i suppose but it was also the one part of the track that it seemed like ferrari was was really performing quite strongly the rest was a little bit more red bull territory but it did take them some time to get up to speed let's say because for the practice sessions they were quite difficult for red bull particularly on the reliability front this is an ongoing story over the course of the five the first five races certainly perhaps over more races still to come max verstappen said that they're creating problems for themselves uh, in the end of course he won the race so only so many problems but he couldn't get pole position for example how costly is it to lose that kind of track time when we are talking about not only a new track but what turned out to be quite a a quirky track in terms of the characteristics to make the car work here yeah i suppose you you can say in hindsight knowing what we mm-hmm. know now that actually the, the the net result was that max won the race anyway mm-hmm. so you could say well it d- does him no harm but actually um he he, he had to fight to put himself in the position to win and, and that in a car which should have been it had the pace to be on pole position and it was on balance over the course of a lap probably the slightly the faster car compared with the ferrari and certainly it seems to be able to look after its tires better over a long run which also gives it a decisive advantage as we saw at Imola as well mm-hmm. so these these sort of little niggling problems with the car and the the team kind of seeming to be struggling to get on top of them are costly and you know as 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 you said well, on on Friday when max suffered overheating in fp1 didn't get many uh, laps in the tank he was already starting to get a bit frustrated the the tv cameras obligingly pointed themselves into the red bull garage and you saw people um looking very animated a bit stroppy mm-hmm. and it's it's clear that the whatever was causing the overheating was something quite vexing quite difficult to track down probably relating to the tight packaging of the car adrian newey you know pulling his beard stubble out and then losing fp2 they decided to have a gearbox change and something went wrong there when he finally got out the the, he he struggled there was something going on with his diff uh he couldn't steer they said it was a hydraulic problem but then there was a fire around the right rear brake drum so maybe something was rubbing maybe that was a factor of, of whatever was causing him to be unable to steer so it it just seemed like they weren't really on top of the car and, and Max alluded to that um, after qualifying where he said, you know, he was still learning his braking points and, and, and exploring the track uh, to try and work out the, the best line through various places or the, bless, the, the best places to brake uh, and, and where to release the brake as well, where to accelerate. And it was while trying to do something a little bit different through turn five that he, um, you know, lost it a little bit 
in his final run on Q3, failed to improve on what had been the fastest time of that session, and both Leclerc and Sainz improved. So we had a Ferrari front row and, and Max uh, a P3. So that gave him all the work to do uh, in the race. And he, he did... Uh, not, not wanting to come back to this business of coaches going around the circuit again, but he did slightly throw the team under the bus when he said that we've made life difficult for ourselves. And then it sets it up to make it look like he sort of saves the day in some respects, doesn't it? It did look relatively easy, though, in the race, didn't it? And this is an interesting aspect of things, I think, at the moment at least. After five rounds, the picture may indeed change when we get to the Spanish Grand Prix and there are more upgrades, particularly on the Ferrari side of things. But... As you said, it seems like the, the Red Bull cars arrived in a place now where it had the, the quicker lap overall in it uh, in this race. Certainly overtaking Charles Leclerc was relatively easy once he'd got past Carlos Sainz at the start. But it's that straight line speed, isn't it, that just seems to be kind of like the, the silver bullet for Red Bull at this point in time. Because Ferrari hasn't really lost any of its pace through that medium and high speed stuff, has it? In fact, Leclerc's sector times were really really impressive in qualifying and the race in the first sector especially if you look at his telemetry mm. and, and sort of throttle usage but that straight line speed is just making such a massive difference how much of that as far as you're as far as you're seeing is is engine versus aerodynamics is it something ferrari can catch up on i think a lot of it is actually engine and so probably there's there's not a great deal they can do we, we've seen both here and in other uh, circuits this year that at these really what what you might call the Vmax areas of of the circuit these these long straights uh the the different design choices that Ferrari and Honda have made really start to become apparent so the the Ferrari's hybrid system is configured to deliver a, a better whack at medium and low speeds so that really improves its cornering performance that helps uh with the design choices they've made with the chassis they've they've prioritized cornering performance the the honda engine uh they 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 have more deployment available uh to the drivers on the straight so when you reach a certain speed the uh the honda in in the red bull is able to deliver more acceleration whereas the ferrari you know encounters what what the engineers call clipping where you, it sounds like a car hitting the rev limiter as as it as it kind of runs out of deployment and you you hear that in the in-car footage as it sort of goes it's a little bit like um sports auto sports sports car correspondent gary watkins um not knowing uh how to respond to a difficult question uh it's it's it, it, it's a tricky and, and I don't think they can design their way out of that in terms of the engine because there's limited things you can do and also they've they've baked that into the concept and it's worked well for them at certain places. What they have been trying to do, Ferrari, is is play some tunes in terms of the aerodynamics. It was very interesting. The the document the FIA now circulates at the beginning of the weekend as part of this business of the the so called show and mm. tell uh, that the teams have to do. They they say what they've done to their cars. Uh, Red Bull said they've done nothing. Uh, Ferrari said that they had fitted it. And this this is a lovely translation uh, thing. They called it a depowered uh, <laughs> rear wing. So they they went for a low drag. Uh, rear rear wing in, in the hope that this would kind of ameliorate or mitigate the the, the straight line speed deficit uh, and unfortunately it's kind of clear that didn't really work out for them so what what you have to do 
as Ferrari and as Charles Leclerc alluded after going on pole and and flagged up the 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 sort of the threat that Max still presented, he said that they need to they need to stay ahead of the Red Bull and to do that they they need to make maximum gains through the corners through the twistier sectors in order to offset that advantage that the Red Bull then gains on the straights and in doing that they are taking more energy out of their tyres and you saw that in the first stint that uh, just by managing his tyres better uh, Max was able to just sit and wait for the Ferrari to start showing signs of tyre degradation and then close to within DRS range and seal the deal with as you said kind of what looked like relative ease but uh, not to take anything away from Max, he uh, at every point he did he did the right thing. He got the right start. He outmuscled Science into turn two. You know he got alongside into turn one, having made marginally the better start. Um, and then he sort of very forcefully said, "Turn two's mine. If you want to try and argue about it, you will be off the road somewhere. So uh, take a ticket." And Science sort of thought, "Okay, right, well." I'll, I'll I'll let you off the corner then, uh, and and that was very typical Max. So we saw the full spectrum of Max Verstappen in 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 this in this race. The the guy who can overtake very decisively and does the Senna style. Let me through, or we crash. But also the guy who can sit back and manage his tyres exquisitely while he waits for the perfect opportunity to do a a clean overtake. So Ferrari, uh, they'll be scratching their heads wondering how they deal with this combination of great car and a driver at the seemingly at the top of his form it's an interesting hypothetical i suppose to wonder whether if carlos Sainz had been able to to hold second place how much that might have changed the complexion at the front i'm reminded completely different track of course but good few years ago now when sebastian vettel was leading kimi raikkonen and leading lewis hamilton in hungary and he had dodgy steering but the fact that there were two cars to one managed to keep the faster car at bay. And I can't help but wonder whether this is an important moment for Carlos Sainz to have had that podium to clear his head a little bit and maybe reinsert himself into a championship fight in which having two cars might actually be really important to Ferrari if the straight line speed disadvantage is just going to be a perpetual thing this year. Yeah, I mean, you really do need both your drivers in the right place to, to run a blocking line. And I think Car- Carlos did what he could. Uh, the, the poor bloke, uh, he... Didn't, didn't see the finish in Australia or Imola. So, as he said, he's lacking race fitness. And he also hurt his neck quite badly mm-hmm. when he uh, smote the wall, as, as Autosports Club legend Marcus Pye would, would say, uh, <laughs> during during practice. Um, it's, it, it, it's tricky, isn't it? You, you do need both your drivers in the right place in order to play tunes on strategy, as, as Ferrari did all those years ago in, in Hungary. Uh, and and we've we've seen it with with Mercedes with Red Bull as well uh, also in Hungary uh, and it went the other way and uh, Max was kind of able to be picked off mm-hmm. by the Mercedes a couple of years ago when Pierre Gasly qualified um, uh, somewhere somewhere in the Czech Republic I think <laughs> uh, on the grid uh, and and was not there leaving leaving a huge gap for uh, Mercedes to play strategic games so. Uh, it was actually quite interesting that after the race, there was another little pointed comment by Christian Horner about needing Sergio Perez to be uh, play a bigger role in in the in races in order to secure the the world championship. 
Which is in and mm. although yeah, that's that's quite mean because mm-hmm. you know, Sergio had an engine problem yeah. that, that the team didn't believe. Yeah. Yes, but then afterwards said that it was worth something like twenty kilowatts, which is an incredibly powerful sensor that failed. Yeah, exactly. And and they they were arguing through through the race. They were saying, No, there's nothing wrong, it's just you've lost the draft. Yeah. And uh, he said, No, no, I can feel it. So they it, that 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 says a lot about um where where they see Perez in the pecking order because if 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 Verstappen said I've got something wrong with my engine then everyone would drop what they were doing to mm. find what the problem was with the engine because uh it, from from Max's mouth it's not a problem with lack of draft uh, it's definitely the engine and and they believe him whereas with Perez they sort of think well you know it's, it's just his imagination get get with the program just drive faster in the words of sir patrick head to antonio pizzonia whatever it is that you do do it better <laughs> a good summary uh, indeed towards the end of the race we got a little bit more excitement when we saw ferrari's better tire warm-up after the safety car help leclerc uh, have a second go at verstappen essentially on the same tire on the hard tire the ferrari was m- a much better match for the red bull racing car but not enough to overcome that straight line speed advantage and verstappen uh, managed to secure the victory and carlos Sainz managed to stay ahead of Sergio Perez I guess both of them a little bit compromised Science had had a slow stop but that time lost to a sense of problem meant Perez was not close enough to capitalize and he had a go but could not get it done on new medium tires one of the few drivers in the field who had fresh tires to switch on to uh, behind that safety car I want to talk a little bit about Mercedes before we wrap this one up though because George Russell again quite a big winner from hanging around waiting for a safety car managed to make a big gain in the end finishing ahead of Hamilton and even Valtteri Bottas but I was surprised so few drivers risked a similar strategy a long run to open the race considering that while we had a relatively tame race in the end only really one crash one intervention the slippery track the closeness of the walls we'd seen plenty of crashes throughout practice we surprised more drivers more teams weren't banking on that being the situation in the race and and going for a similar strategy yeah i I was reminded a little bit of the inaugural um azerbaijan grand prix Mm. the european grand prix as it was peculiarly (laughs) known back then where um in effect the drivers all were sitting idly or hide, hiding in their um, uh, hospitality suites uh, watching the GP2 race as as F2 was known then and just watched the mm. almighty lunacy and incompetence <laughs> that ensued uh, at turn 1 every time there was a there was there were shunts then there'd be a safety car then there'd be a restart then there'd be a shunt at the restart and and collectively they all shook their heads and thought let's not do that and the result was quite a, a tame and dull race and everyone hit the emergency button uh, and said well oh, this 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 track's no good it's useless um we'll we'll we shouldn't come here again and well we <laughs> haven't we had a lot of exciting races at that track ever since uh so as, as, as people kind of got over that fear and and learned a bit more about it and so, so much of Sunday's race in Miami was dictated by this kind of queasiness about what lay in mm. store uh, if you if you stepped off the racing line. And when even that change of position for the lead, there were a lot of people who said that Leclerc capitulated at turn one to Verstappen as sort of Verstappen got got alongside and, and kind of went around the outside. 
and and Leclerc sort of stuck to his guns, didn't block, stayed on the racing line. And Leclerc said after the race, I, I did that because I thought that was the best option. Mm. I, I wasn't capitulating. I just thought the all my experience of that part of the track off the line in that space through Friday and Saturday was that the grip was a disaster. So I thought my best option is to occupy the racing line and stick to what I know and optimise my braking. So you can see why starting on the hard tyre, which offered not great warm-up compared with the medium tyre, that was very much the outlier strategy and one picked on or alighted upon by people who were let's say out out of position further down the grid from where they should have been and and who had less to lose and if you look at the way russell's race panned out he did mm-hmm. lose positions at the start and then the race came back to him so it's very easy to say in hindsight that that was the right thing to do but it had any other circumstances eventuated it might have been different but what we can say is that those hard tires really did last very well and george managed them beautifully you know even uh, when, when he was sort of coming up with that radio message to the team saying you know we, we can just stay on these tires and hope for a safety car um, that spoke a lot about his confidence in it at that point and the lap times he was doing he was in the one minute 33s which was what the leading group were doing so he he wasn't it, it's not as if those tires were uh, losing performance and that he was desperate to get off them as some people had been on the the, the mediums earlier it, he was quite he, he could have done umpteen more laps and wait he could have waited until a safety car five laps from the end maybe who knows so that 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 was certainly interesting but it's something that's very easy to judge in hindsight and probably wasn't the right choice if you were fighting for a podium spot it's an interesting contrast as well admittedly only a, a small slice of everything that happened in lewis hamilton's race for example but he was seemed a little bit frustrated, a little bit flustered to be given the option behind the safety car of whether or not to pit. He said afterwards that he, he wanted to rely on the team's overall view of the situation of the race in making that decision. In the end, he didn't really have any other ties to switch to anyway, only a new set of hards and the warm-up on those were quite difficult. So it's debatable whether it would have been worthwhile or not, even though he probably would have only lost uh, one position to George Russell, which he lost anyway. How have you seen this phase of Lewis Hamilton I suppose obviously it's been pretty overblown the last couple of rounds this idea that he's lost his edge or he's been beaten by Russell but this is a different kind of problem solving required of him now compared to when it was only a matter of finding those extra tenths in the last couple of seasons to to win races against whoever it was he was racing now this is there's a lot out of his hands at the moment is there in terms of extracting the ultimate performance from the car yeah the 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 car is very tricky uh, capricious he's he's likened it to a venomous snake and I, I i i don't buy this theory that lewis has lost mm-hmm. it uh, everything about his demeanor when i see him he's he's the same lewis he's the same incredibly competitive animal uh, and you just know that behind the scenes he is directing all his energy into being the best driver he can be and in spurring the team on to find a way to unlock what they believe is the latent performance in that car. What we've seen where in the past few races where Lewis is perceived to have been uh, underperforming relative to Russell, there have always been reasons for it. For instance, at Imola, he started on the wet line, which Mm. all, all the people who started on that line had problems. He wasn't the only one. 
and the people who started on the dry line benefited. Uh, and he was similarly a victim of circumstance in, in this race. He just had the different strategy so that the, the timing of the safety car left him with a choice between definitely being overtaken by his teammate and maybe likely being overtaken by his teammate. And he, he opted to take the, take the choice that gave him a, a little bit of a chance to make sure that didn't happen so I I think he made the right decision I was a little bit surprised that his discussion with the team took the form of well you tell me Mm -hmm. man what what do we do he's usually a little bit more proactive so I think maybe he was slightly demoralized at the time so he's 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 a driver who wears the heart on his on his sleeve really isn't he Mm -hmm. Lewis so when things aren't going his way um, you do sometimes you can feel that sense of disappointment and and annoyance and you can sense that he's sort of pouting a little bit uh, under his crash helmet and you sort of think come on you know you're seven time world champion you can you can do this so it's it's an interesting human story for sure but I, I don't think we've seen the last of, of Lewis yet and he's he's no less committed likewise I think George has um, bagged every single opportunity he has and it was it was a great race by him to make up for what had been a bit of a trouble qualifying which i i think the the qualifying performance of mercedes in this grand prix tells you everything you need to know about where that car is right now if they're still struggling to understand it and just finally before we wrap this one up there were several different strategy plays through the field one that i thought was a little bit interesting and i think that is probably illustrative of where the car was during this grand prix was mclaren this was as lando norris described it a bit of a reality check for the team after a couple of good races lando norris ran sort of the conventional strategy i suppose was probably on for one or two points daniel ricardo was left out on his opening set of mediums till lap 30 the longest medium stint of the race his times were not spectacular, but they were consistent. You know, it's obviously this is a hindsight situation. Ten more laps, he would have got to the safety car. It's hard to know how much further those mediums could have gone, though. But it really struck me as one of those strategies you see where a team knows the car's not really that good for much in a race where overtaking was a little bit difficult. And they just ended up in a real nowhere land, a no man's land, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And and they got... It's kind of snookered by the the safety car after that, mm. didn't they? And like you say, it it does it does bespeak a, a, a team that's having to reach for for solutions. And just just flicking through my notebook now, there, there's an asterisk and um, three exclamation marks by my note. Uh, <laughs> Ricardo came in. <laughs> Uh, lap thirty, so um, that 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 was one I'd I'd kind of marked for future investigation to dem- thump a table and demand to know <laughs> uh, why. So the uh, uh, un- unfortunately I I didn't get to the uh, McLaren post race pressers, so those those audio excuse notes uh, <laughs> are, are still in my um, uh, my, my inbox. So I'm looking forward to hearing the rationale behind that. But like you say, it is. It, it does it does speak to a certain desperation maybe not because their their chief strategist is a smart guy i don't think he does uh things in desperation randy singh i think he, he always he always has a reason and he has a vision and sometimes it pays off sometimes it doesn't and he understands the risks and he, he knows he, he once said to me that um a, a bad strategy is a bad strategy even if it accidentally turns out well mm. If if you made a decision that that was not good and 
that was a gamble and circumstances mean it worked it was still a terrible decision and you just got away with it so yeah they were unfortunately a little bit snookered by the safety car and then you know Daniel came in again for a a swap to soft tyres which indicates that they thought that was the best course of action and just you know where where was he when he came out one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteenth place uh when the uh safety car was running and after it stopped so you know net they didn't too much lose too much in terms of track position and the the idea was to roll the dice with soft tires at the end and, and see what happened and unfortunately a lot of the people who did swap to so much softer rubber at the end when it was available it didn't really come off for them or it didn't generate the advantage that you would have expected even even Ocon uh who who finished in the the top 10 for Alpine uh also having started at the back also made slightly heavy weather of that last stint there was um, a bit of agitated radio traffic between him and the team them saying you, you basically need to run a blocking line for Alonso to uh, enable him to overcome the five second penalty he had and and not lose position and Ocon saying if I do that I'll get overtaken I can't do that so I, I think maybe the the last minute swap to soft rubber was a, a decision that wasn't borne out by by what happened uh, and then of course Daniel um, you know, was deemed to have gone off the track and gained an advantage so he was also penalized after the race what was interesting about daniel after the race was he was in smiley dan mode and not i'm going to punch a hole in the wall mode so i think judging by that he kind of thought that was about the best they were expecting to get from that race which disappointing but the fact that he was quite sort of sanguine about it and he seemed to be relatively happy with his own performance um, I I think you know you can you can take a lot from that. It's it's just going to be another year where the McLaren technical package is strong in some places and less strong in others, which is kind of weird considering it's a completely different car mm-hmm. that it should seem to have some of the same quirks as its predecessor. It is interesting, isn't it? Same people designing it, and well, I mean, it's a lot of different people designing it, but the same group, and you do end up with something that does resemble cars of the past. It's an interesting thing. The Miami Grand Prix finally got off the ground. Didn't look much like a car park, although I'd be fascinated to see it in a couple of weeks when it does return to its uh, native state as a resting place for cars going to the football. But- it's probably halfway yeah. there now. They were starting to pull it <laughs> apart as we left. Yeah, it's very impressive, isn't it? An interesting race, five races in. Can't wait to see what happens next in this championship. Stuart, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I know it's always a risk that I might say something borderline lunatic, especially when I'm only one coffee into the day. Defeat in Miami was no disaster for Ferrari, but every step forward Red Bull Racing has taken in the last few rounds has ratcheted up the pressure for Marinello's first big upgrade package to deliver at the upcoming Spanish Grand Prix. The car should already be suited to Spain and Monaco as it is, so victory there will be crucial to the Italian team's title credentials. Thanks very much to Stuart Codling for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. 
special thanks to Ben Lope from Lope Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Amanato, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks to debrief the Spanish Grand Prix.